0: Psalm 37 is where we pick back up this evening, and last time we kind of did something unique, we didn't uh, quite get to the closure of Psalm 37, we just kind of went part way into Psalm 37, the first eight verses, as we were going through Psalm 35, 36, and uh, just went down as far as verse 8. In Psalm 37, and uh, kind of in some ways, I said last time, David writes this psalm, Psalm 37, as an older man, kind of passing along, it seems, some wisdom uh, that he's gleaned over the years that he has lived and being more of a seasoned saint now. We know that particularly if you just glance down to verse uh, 25, David says there specifically as he's writing this psalm, Verse 25, he says, I have been young and now I am old. So uh, we know that David is writing this psalm specifically at a time in his latter years. And he's kind of just reflecting back, I think, on lessons that he's learned. Uh, and life does has, have a way of doing that. There's a lot of lessons to be learned. The further we journey, the more things we go through. The more as we walk with the Lord, we get to see God's faithfulness, the ways that God works. And as I said last time, Psalm 37 has become one of my favorites as sort of a psalm that's like a prescription for stress relief. And I find that when I'm feeling stressed or bothered or agitated, whatever it may be, the cause of that, the Psalm 37 just has a lot of truths within it that like a sedative for our soul, it has a way of kind of helping distress us, bringing our perspective back, maybe just reassuring us again, giving us comfort and confidence that we need at times. And in a lot of ways, it's a contrast between the way of the wicked And how the wicked lives and what that results in and the way of the righteous and how the follower of God lives and some of the promises that we can cling to as the Lord's people despite what we see happening among the world. And that's one of the things at times that does kind of unsettle us is we see evil happening in our world and even worse sometimes right like David refers to here again and again it looks like evil's even triumphing or succeeding. And, and that's bothersome to us. It vexes our spirit. It bothers us. And sometimes we even find ourselves wrestling, Lord, it doesn't seem fair. Why does it seem that they're getting away with what they're doing? Why would you let evil triumph? And that kind of causes us to be conflicted. And it's almost as if in this psalm, God says, look, you got to maintain the right perspective on those things. Uh, you can't just buy into what you're seeing on the surface because a lot of that is just the devil's false advertising giving the impression that somehow to live wickedly ends up in triumph when the reality is that's just a completely self-destructive path. And ultimately, it doesn't bring about anything good. It lacks peace, and it's a way that really doesn't bring much blessing at all. Now, given the fact that last time we looked at verses 1 through 8 together and gave exposition on them uh, we won't go back through them, but but I have to at least read the first eight verses again because they're so good. They're actually kind of, in some ways, the fav- my favorite part of the psalm, which is why I kind of just camped there a little bit as we left off in our study last week. Just the statements alone are just so glorious, and it sets the context again as we look through the rest of the psalm tonight. David says here in Psalm 37, we'll again read verses one through eight, he said, do not fret, and that's always a good reminder uh, for all of us. And the reason, don't fret because of evildoers. So don't fret because you see evildoers, nor be envious. Don't let yourself get jealous of workers of iniquity. He then tells us perspective. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass and then wither as the green herb. Well, what should we do? Not fret not be jealous and envious of those who seem to be doing evil and maybe even somehow appears they're enjoying it and getting away with it. God says this is what we should do as the righteous. Verse 3, he told us, remember, trust in the Lord and then do good. So keep your confidence in God, lean on, depend upon the Lord, and just keep doing that which is good. Don't get drawn into doing what's wrong. Don't get drawn into, just keep doing what's good. Don't grow weary in well-doing and dwell in the land. That is, remain where you're at. Stay put. Don't try and go running off, fixing your problem, fleeing and escaping. Just settle in, dwell right where you are, stay put, and just feed on God's faithfulness. Then he said, delight yourself in the Lord. That is, find enjoyment and pleasure. Satisfy yourself, not in worldly things, but find your fulfillment and delight and enjoyment in the Lord and your relationship with him. And the promise, he shall give you the desires of your heart. That is not only does he put into your heart the desires that are his, because as you enjoy the Lord and you love the Lord and find pleasure in your relationship with him, you begin to have his desires and not your own, right? We talked about that because you wanna please him. And when you have his desires, guess what he desires to do? Fulfill those desires because those desires are actually his desires and not mine. It's his will. And so he wants to bring his will to pass. So as he begins to put his desires upon our heart, we can trust that as we're praying and asking those things that he then begins to answer those desires and give us those desires within our heart when we're in right relationship with him. Verse five, he said, commit your way to the Lord. That is turn everything over to him. Trust in him and he shall bring it to pass. We don't have to strive and make it happen. He, by his power, will bring things to pass in his way. No matter what the situation is, we just commit it to the Lord. As we said last time, we commit things to the Lord. We do our best and then we just commit the rest over to God and trust him to bring the pass for us. He shall bring forth your righteousness, David said, as the light, your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord wait patiently for him, wait for him to act. You just rest and wait for him to act. Do not fret, again, he says, because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Or we could even put in there nowadays, wicked legislation to pass. That would fit just as well, it seems. Verse eight, cease from anger and forsake Wrath. So as you find yourself angry and agitated because you're seeing wicked schemes come to pass, God says, cease from that. You don't, don't let anger take over you. You gotta forsake, turn away from wrath and don't fret. God says, it's only going to cause harm, that it just, it just harms us when we stress and we fret, right? It's often been said before, stress and, and anxiety and worry, it's a lot like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it doesn't take you anywhere, right? You just you just you rock back and forth. It gives you something to do, so you feel like you're doing something. But when you stress and we worry over things, it gives us something to feel we actually feel like we're doing something responsible, right? Because sometimes we almost feel like I, if I don't stress, that's like you're responsible. Like you gotta stress. You people, like, what's the matter with you? Why aren't you worried? Don't you know what's going And it's almost like we feel like it's something responsible to stress. And God says, well, that gives you something to do, but it doesn't solve anything. Remember, Jesus ultimately says in Matthew chapter six, he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things shall be added unto you. And then he says in verse 34, he says there, and do not worry about tomorrow. Today has trouble sufficient of its own. In other words, and that's said in the context of just trusting God for our daily, basic, everyday needs. He says, you just keep chasing the kingdom of God, pursuing first as your top priority, the things of the kingdom of God. And all the things that need to come to pass in your life, whether it's material things or circumstantial things or whatever, again, all those things that are lacking. He says, God will add those things into your life in the proper way, in the proper time. He'll give those things to you in the right way as a gift rather than you having to go chase them down like the ungodly do. You don't have to go searching. God will just bless you with them as you're on his right path pursuing him. And he says, and you don't have to worry about tomorrow. Just take one day at a time. Tomorrow you know, is, is something we have no control of, and today's got enough to keep track of, so we just live it one day at a time. He says, don't fret. It only causes harm. Again, if you weren't with us last week, those four key words make it very simple. Verse 3, trust. Verse 4, delight. Verse 5, commit. And verse 6, rest. There's the key right there. When you find yourself stressed out, trust the Lord, delight yourself in the Lord, commit your way to the Lord, and then just rest in the Lord. Verse 9, he goes on to speak about more now of this contrast between the wicked the evildoer and the righteous. And he says, verse nine, for evildoers, again, he repetitiously comes back to the same thought, shall be cut off. Uh, That is ultimately in their evildoing, they are sowing the seeds of self-destruction. And it's important to understand that. In doing what's wrong, there is sort of a built-in self-destructive mechanism. He says right here, and we read these kind of statements all throughout the word of God, he shall soon be cut off. To do evil is not a path that ultimately will prosper. It is a self-destructive path because ultimately sin has consequences. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, that the soul that sins shall surely die. And God ultimately will judge and deal with sin himself in a disciplinary act at the right time. And so again, evildoers, he says, look, they're ultimately gonna be cut off. Their path is not going to be successful long-term but here's the contrast for you and I, those who wait on the Lord, that is who aren't striving and selfishly asserting themselves forward and taking and grabbing and ripping people off and hurting people to get their way in what they want. Those who wait on the Lord, that is to act on their behalf, praying Trusting God to work in situations, committing your way to him, waiting for him to bring it to pass. Those who do that, notice he says, verse nine, they shall inherit the earth for yet a little while. He says, verse 10, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. But the meek, again, notice, shall inherit, same statement again, inherit the earth And delight themselves in the abundance of peace. So, those who do what's evil, who are selfish, who are cruel, who disregard God and His ways and do things according to their own desires and evil perspectives, he says ultimately it's just a matter of time until that all fails until they just self-destruct and they ultimately ruin their own lives in doing that. And, and it looks like they're gaining maybe initially, but ultimately he says, they completely lose everything in the end. Now, in contrast to that, he says, however, the person who waits on the Lord, the meek, he says, notice, he says two times in our verses here, they shall inherit, verse nine, the earth. Again, he says in verse 11, the meek shall inherit the earth. The idea there, again, think about it, An inheritance is something that you don't work for, right? An inheritance is something you freely receive as a gift simply because of relational things. As you're related to your parents, as you're related to this relative, you receive an inheritance. So an inheritance is something that someone gives to you as the result of their love for you and their generosity and kindness, and it has nothing to do with anything really other than just relationship because there are some people that get a great inheritance they don't deserve it at all right the only reason they get that inheritance is because of who they're connected to relationally and what god is saying here is look the way to inherit even if you were to inherit all the earth the way to inherit and to receive those things and to get the things that are on this earth is not to strive and to take And to grab and to assert yourself and force your way and, you know, hurt people along the way and be selfish and harsh and cruel. That's the world's motto, right? That's the way that the world conveys you get ahead in life. And that's how you get things in life. You got to look out for number one. It doesn't matter who you got to hurt and step on to work your way up the ladder. And that's what the world says. And God says, as my people, we do things totally different. It's an upside down kingdom. In fact, he actually says, not only those who wait on the Lord, that is waiting for God to act on our behalf and give us what we need by three answers to prayer. But he also mentions in verse 11, it's the meek. And the word meek means simply not only just humble, but it literally speaks of someone who has great power or authority, but yet it is channeled and under control. Again, the best illustration oftentimes of the word meekness is like a strong thoroughbred horse that has great power, but yet it's been... Tamed and subdued, and it's been broken. Now, that horse has the same amount of power as it had when it was a wild horse, right? It didn't become weak, it just became meek. All of its power and strength is still within it, but now its power and authority and strength is under control. And that's the idea of meekness. It's not being weak or someone who's wimpy or a pushover, it's just someone who can channel their self control in a way where they walk in humility and they say, you know what, I don't need to be hurtful and aggressive and mean and cruel and selfish. I I can just simply trust the control of God and I will walk in humility and I'm not going to strive or push and try and manipulate. Instead, I'm just going to wait on the Lord and I'm going to pray and I'm going to trust that God will make me inherit what my father wants me to inherit. And my father will give to me that which he wants to give to me. And here, this is the idea that we live in contrast to those in the world. He says, the meek shall inherit as we wait on the Lord. God gives us things as blessings. And he indicates as well, another wonderful gift, as he says in verse 11, regarding the the godly and those who wait on the Lord and who are meek, he says the end of verse 11, they shall also delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Boy, isn't that one of the greatest gifts anybody wants? The abundance of peace. See, you can you know, be living hard and fast, pursuing this pleasure and this evil and that sin, and at the end of the day, go home and be completely what? Miserable and empty, right? And there are tons of people for some of us in this room before we came to the lord right we indulged substances whether it was alcohol or drugs and lived the party life and you know did all these things to selfishly gratify ourselves and what happened the next morning all of your problems were still there all of my issues didn't go away <laughs> In fact, I just had more, and I was thinking headache, and then you the hangover, over, and then you're you know, struggling because now you want to do it again, premature, and, and, and all these issues arise. There's nothing but just regret and misery, and, and there's no peace in any of that. And he says one of the greatest benefits of the one who lives for the Lord is they don't just experience peace, but abundance of peace. You know, like that beautiful hymn, it is well with my soul. And how wonderful to just experience the peace of God and to know that you have peace with God. And that's why we experience peace because we know that if we've come to Jesus Christ and we've embraced him as savior and Lord, the Bible says that we've made peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And when you come to Christ as a sinner and embrace him as your savior, you then and I then make peace with God. That is judicially, God is not at war with us, and we're not at war with God anymore. We've made our peace with God, and then we experience the peace of God. That is experientially. Once we make peace with God, then we experience the peace of God, and Jesus himself in John 14 spoke about this beautiful reality. He said, my peace I leave with you, and how wonderful to be able to delight and enjoy the abundance of peace of living in that way rather than the misery of how many in the world Strive and are upset and unhappy. Verse 12 he says, "And the wicked plots against the just, and gnashes at him with his teeth. Isn't that interesting. The Bible pictures how those who are wicked not only plot things against those who are just and righteous, it's almost as if it sounds like there's an agenda in that statement, doesn't it? The wicked plot against the just and the righteous it indicates to me by the Holy Spirit there's actually an agenda of wicked people to try and do what they can to bring down and to destroy those who do what's just. Why? Because they make them feel guilty. See, when you live wickedly, you don't like just people. You don't like righteous people or moral people because they constantly provide a standard that says what you are doing according to God's standard, your creator, is wrong. And so there's, there's a plotting against, hey, we've got to get rid of the just because they make us feel uneasy. And so here he says, the wicked plot against the just, they gnash at him with his teeth. Look at verse 13. The Lord laughs at him, that is the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. You know, people may ask sometimes, does God have a sense of humor? Does God laugh? Is there anything that makes God laugh? I don't know if he laughs at... Things that we laugh at, you know, a, a joke or a sitcom or whatever. But there's one thing that apparently the Bible does say more than once God laughs at. God laughs when man thinks somehow he's going to outsmart God. That's what makes God laugh. God looks upon this. Do you really think? Really? You really think that's going to work? You really think ultimately that you're going to, you know, win against God. You're going to rebel against God It says the Lord laughs at him. For he knows that his day is coming, the day when he'll have to answer to his God. The wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow. The idea is to attack like a military assault, to cast down the poor and the needy. So again, another reflection of those who are wicked. They have no concern for the poor and the needy. They just quickly brush them aside as long as they can advance their agendas to slay those who are of upright conduct. Their sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. The idea is what they plan ultimately backfires and comes back upon them. Verse 16, he says, A little that the righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked, for the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds The righteous. So David had learned. He learned. You know, it is better to live righteous and to have less than it is to live completely wicked and have all the wealth and resources that you possibly could enjoy. He said, because there will be more peace in having just a little, you know, cup of soup and peanut butter sandwich than there is to have filet mignon and lobster tail and to be living wickedly your entire life long. Because ultimately, again, that lack of peace and the misery and the regret and the agitation, he says, the little that a righteous man has. Again, just to live righteous, to know that you're right with God and to have what you have and to be content with that, he says, that is much better than all the riches that you could possibly amass and live a wicked life. Remember, Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? and forfeits his own soul. You know, Paul speaks about some of this same reality in First Timothy chapter six. He alludes to this reality of just, you know, being content and content with the Lord and what he has done in our lives. Paul tells us this in 1 Timothy chapter six. He says, now godliness with contentment is great gain. How do you know if you're getting ahead in life? To have a relationship with God and to have contentment. In your temporal material circumstances godliness with contentment god says that's great gain you're starting to get ahead now on earth for we brought nothing into this world right none of you showed up with a haul truck when you came out of your mother's womb right you didn't even have clothes on right they had to give you a diaper we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out i've been doing funerals for over 20 years Never been a U-Haul truck behind the hearse. They never take anything with them to the grave. We bring nothing into the world. We carry nothing out of the world. That's how we start. That's how we finish. And having food and clothing, Paul says, with these we shall be content. And then he says this, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition for the love of money, notice not money, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed even from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So again, the little that a righteous man has, nothing wrong with having excess, nothing wrong with having wealth. In that same chapter, First Timothy 6, I was just reading from, Paul later on gives instruction to the rich within the church, So there were wealthy people in the church, and he says, look, don't don't fall in love with your riches. Be generous with your riches. God's blessed you, he says, with all things to richly enjoy, and he simply just told the wealthy, don't have a tight grip on it. God's blessed you. You have excess. Be thankful. Help those who are less fortunate. So again, nothing in and of themselves wrong with that, but what he's saying here is to just have a right relationship with God, that should be one of the greatest gifts that anybody would ever want, and really it's something that could bring so much more value and has such greater wealth to it than even all types of material things. A little that a righteous man has, David understood that, better than the riches of many wicked. Verse 18, he says, The Lord knows the days of the upright, and their inheritance shall be, he says, forever. They shall not be ashamed in the evil time And the days of famine, they shall be satisfied. So he speaks of how in the hard days, famine, difficult times, he says, the Lord keeps track of the upright, that is those who are living in right relationship with him, who are in right relationship, he says, and he makes sure to preserve them. In the days of famine, when others are struggling, God makes sure that his children are satisfied and taken care of. He's a good father. But the wicked, he says, verse 20, shall perish. And the enemies of the Lord, like the splendor of the meadows, shall vanish into smoke. They shall vanish away. Verse 21, he declares, the wicked borrows and does not repay. But contrast, the righteous shows mercy and gives. So there's another contrast David makes here between the wicked and, Person and the righteous person. He says the wicked person is borrowing continually, and not only that, they don't pay back. That is, they acquire debt and they don't satisfy their debts. They don't see the responsibility or the integrity of doing that. The wicked borrows and does not repay, but the righteous shows mercy, that is, doesn't want to take, but wants to be merciful even to others in their failure, and the righteous does the opposite. Look, the righteous gives. Not only does the righteous pay back, again, Romans 13 tells us that we should, you know, owe no man anything except the debt of love. The one debt the Bible encourages us to have is to love people. The Bible really cautions us against other forms of debt, but he says, this is the one thing you should owe to everyone love. And this is the idea where the, the righteous shows mercy and the righteous is always looking for ways to give from people, not to take, but to look for ways to give and to help whenever they can. He says, verse 22, for those blessed by him, that is blessed by, should be a capital H, blessed by God, by the Lord, shall inherit the earth. There's our statement again. But those cursed by him, shall be cut off. Verse 23, beautiful, encouraging verse. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he, that's God, delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. There are great promises there. The steps of a good man, that is a man who's living in a good way, that is God's way, that is if you're trying to walk with God, you're trying to walk in a good path that's pleasing to the Lord, then the promise is the steps of your life are going to be ordered by the Lord. That is, God is orchestrating your steps. If you're just simply following him, God will orchestrate your steps and my steps to make sure that we get on the path that we're supposed to be on in life, which really is a helpful thing. It's almost as if God says, look, instead of trying to scan the horizon, say, should I take that path? Or should I take that path? Should I take that path or should I take that path? Well, other people are taking that path. God just says, just walk with me. You just walk with me. And again, and if you walk with me, I'll order your steps. I'll order your steps are right and you will get to the right destination. I mean, think about it. To go from here to where one of my daughters is now all the way out to the West Coast and in California, there are many different ways you can get there, right? There are lots of different roads and routes that you can take to get to the exact same destination. And I used to tell my girls all the time when they were growing up, I used to say, look, just, you, if you just walk with the Lord, I don't know exactly what road he's going to take you on. And, and sometimes we think that the, you know, the, the, the best way is just the straightest direction, right? You know, the best route to take is just the straight line, the shortest from here to here. And, and that sounds logical, but sometimes God supersedes logic. I found that sometimes when you walk with the Lord, sometimes he'll take you this way and he'll take you that way and he'll even take you back a step or two and then he'll zig you over here and he'll zag you over there. Ultimately, he'll get you to the destination he wants to get to because he knows there's lots of ways. And here's the, here's the encouraging thing, and it ties together with what we're looking at here. Even if you fail, in case you do, happens to me all the time, but in case you should, if you fail periodically and you make a bad decision here, where you stumble into sin there, and you make a mistake, and you do, and, oh, man, I just, oh. I, one of my daughters who's, you know, very hypersensitive conscience, and, and, and I mean, the tiniest thing, she, oh, my. And it was like, the, that's it. Life's over. I mean, just life's over. I mean, And I say, look, if God needs to, just like your uh, thing in your car, the GPS, just rerouting, 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 he'll still get you to the same destination because there's lots of paths. He'll order your steps. The key is just keep walking with the Lord. Micah six says he has shown thee O man what is good and what the Lord desires of thee to do justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. How do you walk one step at a time? You just keep walking with God. That's the analogy the Bible gives to us of relationship, walking with God together with him. And if you do that, he will order your steps. He'll order your steps to get you where you need to go. I don't know what route will take you, but he'll order your steps and get you to the right destination, meeting the right people, connecting to the right situations time to time. He'll order all those things and he'll delight in your way. Not because of even the path, particularly that you're taking, well, should I go to college or should I be a this or a that? He'll just find pleasure. I'm just so pleased that you're walking with me. Just so pleased that you're walking with me. And I don't care if you go to this college or that college. I don't care if you have this job or that job. I'm going to get you to the destination. It just pleases me that you're walking with me some. That's what pleases God. And even when we falter, what does he say? Though he may fall, there's the failure concept. He shall not be utterly cast down. God will say, you failed. That's it. Road trip over. Go home. I'm canceling the destination. No, you're not. Nope, you're not going to California now. That's it. You're done. What does God do? God says, uh, there's lots of routes to get you there. Even though we fall, he says, he shall not be cast down for the Lord upholds him with his hand. That is, God just puts his arms around. He says, okay, let's get back up. We made a mistake. Uh, We'll just take a right and a left. May take a few extra turns, but we'll still get you there because the Lord upholds us and he continues to guide us. And ultimately what great hope you can have that even if you fall, God's not gonna let you just be done. He's not gonna let you be destroyed. He's gonna continue to faithfully uphold you and walk you forward. It's a great encouragement to have as one who serves the Lord. David says, verse 25, and I have been young and now am old. And that does happen. You can look back and say, yeah, there was a time. I remember when I was young and I'm not anymore. (laughs) Now now I think I'm crossing over into the other line, You know, moving more towards being old. Yet, look what he said. This is what I've learned having been young, And now David's an older man. He says, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken nor his descendants, that is the children of the righteous, begging bread. So he says, here's what I've seen having been young and now I'm an old man. God always takes care of his children. He said, I have never seen God forsake his servants. I always see God as a good father making sure he doesn't forsake his children. Again, the Bible says, though our mother and father, Psalms tell us, may forsake us, the Lord will take care of us. He's a good father, and how wonderful to know that. God's not going to forsake you. People may have forsaken you. People may forsake you, but you continue to serve the Lord and live a righteous life. David says, here's something I've seen, and I'm an old man now. He says, I've never seen the righteous forsaken. God never forsakes his people because his reputation's at stake, right? He doesn't want to look like a dysfunctional father. He's a good father. And he says, I've never seen him forsaken and even his descendants. He says, you make sure he takes care of his kids to provide what they need as well. He is ever merciful and lends. Now that's a reference there, I believe, not to God, but to the righteous again. He's ever merciful and lends and his descendants, that is the descendants of the righteous are blessed. So that's why it pays to live righteous. You live righteous, your children end up being blessed as a result of the overflow of your right way of living. It, it translates over into their life and brings blessings into their life when you serve God. Verse 27, depart from evil and do good and dwell forevermore. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake. David goes back to the same concept. He does not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, sustained shielded and protected no matter what's going on he preserves his saints but the descendants of the wicked notice the exact opposite shall be cut off again when parents live wickedly what does it do not only ruin their life and i see it all the time sadly it destroys their children's lives you know just on a phone call just within the last week or so in a situation real messy situation and again having to bring to the attention to You know, the parent, look, your kids are becoming the innocent casualty here. They didn't sign up for this. The selfish living that is going on in the lives of the parents is hurting and harming and destroying the children. They didn't sign up for this. You're two adults. You consented and you chose to have those kids. And now your selfish actions are cutting off the benefit and the enjoyment of those kids and and bringing ruin into their lives. And, And here, this is the idea, the tragedy of when adults begin to live in wrong ways, is it causes their their kids to suffer. And this is what he says here. You know, the descendants of the wicked end up being cut off, but the righteous shall inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous, verse 30, he declares, speaks wisdom. So again, one of the marks of that person that's righteous is they have right things to say, right? They can offer wisdom to others and help other people to have a right perspective on how to live. The mouth of the righteous speaks wisdom and his tongue talks of justice. Why does he have wisdom, the righteous? Verse 31 tells us, because the law of God is in his heart. That's where true wisdom comes from. When God's word is within our heart, the idea is, notice, it's not in our head. And I always like to take notice of that in the Bible. The Bible says, "I've Psalm 119, it's going to say, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It doesn't say, I've hidden your word in my head. Now, intellectually, do we know the knowledge in our head as well? Yes, but knowing it in your head is information. Knowing it in your heart means it's governing, governing the, the, you know, the epicenter of your being because what's going on in our hearts usually is what dictates the way that we behave, what we do and what we don't do. So he says the law of God, it's not just in his head, it's in his heart. That is, it's become a part of his being. The heart speaks of the innermost part of who we are and out of the overflow of our heart. Our mouth speaks. Again, it's our heart that governs who we are as a person. So again, we want God's word to be settled in our heart where it governs over us. The law of God is in his heart and therefore none of his steps shall slide. So when God's word is in your heart, it helps you to live a stable life from slipping and falling. The wicked watches the righteous, seeks to slay him. and The Lord will not leave him in his hand nor condemn him when he is judged. Wait on the Lord, David says, keep his way, and he shall exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. I have seen the wicked in great power, David declares, spreading himself like a green, a native green tree, yet he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Indeed, I sought him, but he could not be found. Now, notice what David draws our attention to. David says, again, I'm... I'm was once young, I'm old now. And he said, and as I've lived my life, I've seen from time to time, God will let the wicked come to power. He he says it right there. I have seen the wicked in great power and, and spreading, advancing himself, flourishing like a green tree. So he says, there are times where God in his sovereign purposes has done what? And we see through Israel, God gives the people what they want. And sometimes what the people want is a wicked ruler. And so again, God says, Look, there are times God says he can set up kings, he can tear down kings. And sometimes you wonder, why is this person in power? Why is that wicked person in power? Well, it could be it's a form of God's judgment. It could be that God's saying, well, that's what you want. How about you try that for a while? I'll give you your desire. That's what you asked for. Remember, the people wanted a king. What did God give them initially? Saul. Saul was a horrible king, but that's what they wanted. So God said, here, take that for a drive for a while. And then ultimately after they're miserable enough, then eventually God raised up David, right? And gave him a king after his own heart. So there are times when God will allow wicked people to come to power. It's not that he endorses their wickedness, but God at times will allow them to rise to a place of power. But yet ultimately notice, God is also able to remove them as well. David says, I looked and saw that ultimately he was cut off and he was no more. Verse 37, mark the blameless man or take note of him. Observe the upright for the future of that man is peace. So David says, take note of the man who lives in a blameless way, observe him. He says, the future of that man is peace, but the transgressor shall be destroyed together. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. So notice again, David draws this contrast here. Do you see what he does? Now he's talking about the future of two different people. And this is something a lot of times that we don't tend to pay attention to. It's not just what am I doing now presently, but what we should always be taking into consideration when we live our lives is, okay, what will this translate into a week from now? A month from now? A year from now? Five years from now? If I keep on this path the trajectory of where I'm going, what is that going to lead me to in my life? What kind of life is it going to give me? What kind of lifestyle is it going to give me? What's it going to ultimately do to my marriage, my family life? Again, and we don't consider that a lot of times, but yet the Word of God tells us that this is wisdom. Later on, we're going to see in one of the Psalms where he talks about you know the man who's wise numbers his days, pays attention, that life is short, and that days do have a set amount of number. and. And that we take that into consideration. And so he says here in verse 37 and 38, here are two different futures. He says the blameless man doesn't mean the perfect man. The idea is the man who lives without guilt. That is, he's not involved in something that he can be blamed for. That's the idea of blameless. Is there's not something you can look at that person's life. Doesn't mean they're perfect. No one's perfect. The only perfect man that ever existed was Jesus. And that's because we're so imperfect and sinful that Jesus had to come live the perfect life as a man to satisfy what God requires to enter into heaven so that he could then be the perfect substitute to be punished for me and my sin, to give me access in my future through the forgiveness of sins to enter into heaven. Blameless conveys the idea is there's not something going on in your life that somebody could point out blame for you doing that you're willfully doing wrong. The idea is they can throw mud at you, but it's not gonna stick. That's the idea of blameless. There's not something going on in my personal life, in my private life that I could be blamed for, and it's a credible blame. That instead I'm living with integrity, I'm living in a way that is right and not guilty of some sneaky bad behavior. And he says, the future of that man is what? Peace. Peace. Can't guarantee prosperity for the future, but God says, I can promise you peace. Would you like to have peace a month from now in your life? Would you like to have some peace a few years down the road? Would you like to have peace in your marriage, peace in your family life, peace in your personal life? God says, just don't do shady stuff. Don't get involved in stuff where you're messing around over here and being, God says, just do what's right, stay blameless. And he says, your future will be a path of peace. You'll get to experience peace. But the transgressors, means those who willfully rebel, they cross the line that they know is right, shall be not only destroyed, but he says the future of the wicked shall be cut off. The idea of cut off is ruined. To live wickedly is just a path of ruin. There's nothing to prosper and there's no peace. It's just a path of complete ruin ultimately down the road. And sadly, we see that so many times, it's a heartbreak. Verse 39, but the salvation of the righteous, he says, is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. And is that not true? In time of trouble, we find our strength in the Lord. He gives us strength to go through our times of trouble. When it seems like we're just overwhelmed with the difficulty, he strengthens us to walk through those difficult, troubling times. And the Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in him. That is, as because we rely upon the Lord, ultimately, is there going to be obstacles? Is there going to be troublesome times? Yeah, the Bible's saying it right there. He shall be their strength in time of trouble. And what causes us trouble on this earth? The existence of sin, right? It's the existence of sin. But thankfully, though, we're going to deal with trouble and hardship and difficulty. And the Bible even tells us in the last days, 2 Timothy tells us in the last days, perilous times will come. The idea of perilous times, literally in the language, is days that are distressing and difficult to deal with. So David said, I've seen this. I'm an old man now. Life's got trouble. It's not always easy. But he says, in the midst of trouble, there's peace that can be found. And in the midst of trouble, the Lord can give us strength to overcome the troubles that we go through on this life. And ultimately, he says, the good news is, is the Lord helps us. The Lord protects us, he says. And one day the Lord's going to deliver us, he says. He always comes to our deliverance. And the reality is that is the hope for us in a fuller sense who know Jesus Christ is that Jesus has saved us, right, from the penalty of our sin. When you come to Jesus Christ and you accept him as savior, as your salvation, he, you escape and you are delivered from the penalty of your sin, which means you don't have to go to hell. And he also saves us and delivers us from the power of sin. That is no longer do I got to live like the wicked people do. I used to live like that, but now I have a choice. I've been delivered. Now I have the option to walk upright and righteous and let the lord order my steps and walk with god before i was saved i was a slave you were a slave to sin you had no choice you had to live wickedly you don't look for people the way they're living in the way why are they living like that because they're enslaved we should feel pity for them they're enslaved they are stuck they've never been delivered from the power of sin that's why they are stuck living in their wicked ways because they don't even have control over their own lives they don't even realize it but there is a genuine spiritual demon the devil himself who is ruling over their lives and the power of sin is controlling them until jesus christ sets them free and delivers them from it so he saves us from the penalty of sin he saves us from the power of our sin and then one day ultimately he's going to save us and deliver us from the presence of sin That's why, you know, what that is why ultimately you could interpret where he says there in verse 37, the future of the upright, blameless man is peace, because guess what your future is if you walk with Jesus and you know Jesus, is one day you're going to get the peaceful experience of being set free from this world that causes us a lot of trouble, sickness and suffering and disease and hardship and frustrations and difficulties and divorces and murders and rapes and abuse and wars I mean all these things that and all because of sin and one day you're going to get the peace to be set free from this world and the power of sin and the presence of sin and be in heaven with the Lord forever that's where the peace is going to come from And I, you know, I can't help but to wonder if one of the first things I know I'm going to want to do when I get into heaven is go ah it just kinda of, it's gonna be my thing. I don't know what yours will be. Maybe you'll jump hallelujah, you know. Mine's gonna be <sighs> Finally. Let's stand together, let's pray.